0: And now let's get into it. We um, we're in the book of James, uh, and when we we just went through a, a, a we just went through a, a a study on biblical justice. What does the Bible say about justice, and, and the church's responsibility in that? And I asked everybody in the beginning. I said, here's I asked everybody to kind of maintain this uh, this w- this one verse is kind of like our guideline through the whole thing, which is. To be, uh, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, right? Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, which is right out of the book of James, and now we're in this part, so we are gonna, today we're going to get down with what exactly that means and why I was asking you uh, to hold to that principle as we listen to what Scripture told us about biblical justice. So if you, uh, if you would now, would you please stand uh, out of uh, respect? For the speaker who is God speaking through his word to us. Let's listen uh, intently now to God's inerrant word. This is James chapter 1 verses 19 through 27. The reading is in your bulletins or you can follow along in the Bible. Here we go. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. for he looks at himself and then goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious, does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure. And undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for we thank you for James and how he is straightforward, Lord, and how he speaks directly, straightforward truth to us, Lord. And we know, Lord, that all of your words, even though our fallen hearts can tend to receive some of these things as assaults even or uh, as threats to things we love or, um, uh, as, or we can be afraid that we'll never measure up, Lord, we know that your word is, is, is full of promises to us that have been secured by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and that we can rest in that and know that. That we belong to you. And so, Lord, we pray that as we work through this passage today, you would show us really this, this dichotomy between hearing and doing, uh, that it is a, that is a call for you for blessing, a call from you for life, and that these are promised to us, promises to us, and not threats, so that we might receive them with joy. Lord, help us to see that. Help us to see the beauty of your character reflected in these things, your love for us, especially your love for us. Through your Son, Jesus, we pray you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. Because in and through it, you promise to beautify us, your afflicted ones. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, have you noticed that sometimes Jesus' parables... Jesus' parables, he lays out some pretty bizarre stuff and that you just don't understand what he's talking about. For example, the parable of the wicked servant or the dishonest servant. He, he, there's this parable, this story about this guy who basically goes and, and cheats, his, cheats his employer out of a bunch of money due to him and at the end Jesus says, see, be wise like this guy. I don't even, know, I still have no idea really what he's talking about, I mean, sort of. I can kind of get the point, but why is Jesus like using such a bad example, <laughs> a bad example of a human to like get across this point? Here's another one, not quite, as, not quite as weird, but still a bit, a little bit weird. This is the parable of the two sons from Matthew 21. This is it, when Jesus is grilling the Pharisees the last week of his public ministry before his crucifixion in the temple. Uh, it's a short story. He tells this story about two brothers. It's short, so let's just read it. This is Jesus. He says, what do you think a man had two sons... He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, no, no way, not going to do it. But then he changed his mind and he went. And then he went to the other son and said the same. And the second son said, I go, sir. But he did not. And then Jesus asked the Pharisees this question. He says, which of these two did the will of his father? And I don't know about you, but my first response is like, neither. (laughs) I mean, they both kind of suck, right? One's a liar, the other one's kind of a spoiled brat. Uh, I'm looking for the guy, like, I'm looking for the guy in the story that says, I go, sir. I go now and with joy because you are my father who has given me life and joy and all that I have. I'm looking for that guy, right, because I want to identify with that guy, but he's not there. All these parables, Jesus just like throwing people under the bus, right? And maybe that, that's the clue to why those parables and parables like this are kind of weird to us is because they get a little bit too real. What is what is, your typical response to the Word of God, especially those sections of the Word of God that really challenge cherished heartfelt deep-set beliefs that you have accumulated over time beliefs that are in contradiction with what god's word says beliefs that for all intents and purposes to you as a 21st century person seem to be good and right and true and yet the gospel of the word of god says nope not good not right not true how what's your reaction to some of those things well, if you're like me, typical response to those things is I'm like that for a son. I'm like, no, no way, not going to do it, not going to do it. And then what happens, right? God figures out some way to break you He puts you in like the sanctified arm bar, the emotional chokehold, puts a little pressure on, and then finally he breaks you and you're like, okay, fine, fine, I'll do it. I'll do it even though it means that my life will suck from here on out and everything good will be gone and I'm going to be miserable. And you do it and what happens? It ends up being a huge blessing down the road. That's the first son. That's us. And James, here James, who is Jesus' brother, is really laying out those same principles. He's telling us the same, the parable of the two sons. The parable of the, the brother, the hearing brother who says he'll obey but he doesn't. The double minded brother if you will. And then he's contrasting that with the doing brother of faith who fights and squirms and tries to get out of it. And doesn't want to do it and, but eventually God works with him and he changes his mind and he does it. That's The contrast that really James is laying out in this passage. Because the word of God can be a hard pill to swallow. Prophets say it all the time. Even John says it. Bitter can be bitter in your stomach, right? Uh, The truth of God can be a hard pill to swallow. Now you all all heard the saying that the truth will set you free, right? What they don't tell you is that first the truth will make you mad. And then the truth will make you sad, and then the truth will set you free. And that's our outline for today's sermon. Truth is going to make you mad. Second, the truth will make you sad. Third, then the truth will set you free. So let's go through that one part at a time. First, the truth will make you mad. I've told you guys this before. I talked about it in our small group the other night, but I really entered seminary thinking. That if I could just learn the arguments for good doctrine, if I could just learn the arguments for right theology and why uh, why the Bible says the things it does and why it's good, true, and beautiful. Uh, because we had come from a background where uh, we'd come from a background of an evangelical Christian church where everyone considered themselves to be biblical Christians. And yet many of their beliefs and practices were contrary to what the Bible said. They didn't even know it. And and it caused suffering and pain in people's lives. And I was like, man, if I could just learn what the Bible says and and really be able to explain it well, then I would just be able to sit down with these people and say, here's what the Bible says and logically lay it out. And I really expected people to be like, oh, thank you so much for showing that to me. I'm so grateful. (laughs) One of my first clues to figuring out that that's not how it was going to go was in my very, very early days, first year, I think, as a, as a pastor, there was a, a girl, uh, part of our church, really nice, really good Christian girl, loved Jesus with all her heart, uh, and then uh, she ended up getting the non-Christian boyfriend, and one thing led to another, and it got to the point where the elders were going to have to come and talk to her about some you know some decisions that she had made that We knew we're going to cause pain and suffering later down the line. And so I laid out this argument for her. I was like, look, here's what, here's where the elders are. And this is what the elders are called to do. And this is what it means to care for your soul. And here's the authority that Christ has given to elders. And, 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 and I know we're not perfect men at all, but we are really doing our best to care for you. And here's why. And you'd have thought a bomb went off in that room. She uh, became extremely angry. Extremely angry and was very fast to speak, (laughs) rifling off her reasons why that was just my interpretation and then becoming very angry. What had happened? What happened? Why did she have that response? My mistake was I was having what I thought was a theological conversation and I make this mistake. This is my mistake. This This is... this is like why I need to surround myself with guys like Brian and Charlie and Herb because this is like where I like stick my foot in it all the time. I think we're having a theological conversation, but we are not. We are having an emotional conversation. What happened in that? That girl, what she wanted more than anything in life was to be loved and to experience the love of someone. And that's a very good and it's not a bad thing, right? But she was going about it in a way that we knew was going to end up being painful in the end. Uh, And so when I presented to her what the Bible said about her situation, she interpreted it as a threat. What the Bible was saying was going to take away from her the one thing she wanted most in life, the one thing that was going to give her security and make her feel safe and loved and protected. And so it was a threat, and that threat caused fear, and the fear caused a, a spontaneous verbal verbal dispense she was slow to listen she was quick to speak and quick to anger listen to what James says 19 and 21 know this my brothers my beloved brothers every person let every person be quick to hear slow to speak slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls this is a general truth okay this is a general truth that we should apply to all of life in just about any situation we as christians should be when we're debating with someone when we're considering someone else's ideas uh, when we are like engaged in a conversation. When we are discussing the various relative merits of wearing masks or not wearing masks, oh. Did I say it out loud? Did I say that out loud, Brian? Dang it. We should be slow. <laughs> We should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, right? But this is, although this, and James gets into this in a general way in chapter three, we're gonna get into it more in a general way, but I don't think this is a general application. I think there is a specific object that James is saying that we should be quick to listen to and slow to speak against and slow to be angry against. And what is it? Listen, he says, but instead of getting all angry and, and, and whatnot, he says, instead, receive with meekness the word. What is meekness? Meekness is really the opposite of getting all angry and puffed up and, and, and argumentative. And meekness means like in humility, accept and listen and consider. And what are we to receive and consider? The word. The word of God. So he's speaking specifically. The object is, he's calling us to not be quick to speak against or be angry about the Word of God. Now, what on earth would we ever cause us to, as evangelical, conservative, reformed Christians to speak against the Word of God or be angry at the Word of God? Look, everybody, everybody, all of us, me, you, all of us, we all have cherished, emotionally held uh, deeply meaningful hopes, dreams, ideas, beliefs that we have just by virtue of being Americans in America, in the Western world have kind of assimilated into our, uh, you know, smorgasbord of thought, of belief, our belief system. Everybody's got those things about what it is that will make you safe what's going to make you happy what is going to give you satisfaction in life Um, what do you think is good and right and fair based on your feelings and experience of the world that we live in right and oftentimes we're gonna come across a part in the Bible that says no that is not good it's not true it's not beautiful and man when that happens Anybody your immediate reaction is going to sense you're going to have your threat level is going to go up through the roof Depending on what it is. It could be minor could be major And I don't know that's kind of a fill-in-the-blank thing, right? Maybe you feel like you know You'll come across a part where the Bible really threatens your retirement plan really maybe the Bible is going to threaten uh, your savings account your economic security the Bible is going to threaten um, you know, James, James like lays out on the table throughout this passage all kind of things that contradict if we are to be doers of the word, things that will contradict many of our culturally accepted ideas. He's going to say, you know, don't primarily associate with people who can advance you in your careers, especially in church. Give with partiality. Be willing to sacrifice a good portion of your entertainment and discretionary money to serve the poor and to care for those who are, are helpless in society. Things that really affect us that can feel for all the world like a threat and trigger that fight or flight mechanism. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you find yourself like not wanting to come to church. You're not wanting to talk to the pastors. You don't want to talk to elders. You don't even want to start talking to your friends. Your friend, you start cutting your friends off. You start uh, um, blocking people on Facebook. And before you know it, you have like completely isolated yourself from all the means that god has used to speak truth to your life why because the word of god can sound like a threat um and james is laying it out he's saying look he's saying rather than get all angry rather than um Just letting all your sin just boil up inside you and spill over instead how about maybe maybe it would be a good idea instead to quietly and to meekly to humbly consider what god who has all wisdom and knowledge and power the creator of the universe has said things work best how love really works what love really looks like in the world maybe We shouldn't be so overly impressed with our own wisdom and instead first seek out what God who has all wisdom and knowledge says. Receive his word with meekness. And I get it. That can be a hard thing. The struggle will be real in some cases, but it's a blessing. So the first thing the word of God does is it exposes our beliefs and the second thing it does is maybe even worse It doesn't just expose your beliefs. It exposes you for who you really are. Let's look at the second thing. The truth will make you sad. As I thought about this again uh, this morning, maybe I think a better word than sad would be cringe. But it didn't rhyme, so I couldn't use it. Um, You know. You know how that goes. But cringe is really maybe the word. Have you ever like... Think about, think about the first time you ever heard your voice recorded on tape. You ever remember, you ever remember that and you're just like, Ew. especially if there were other people there and you were like, oh, God, I don't sound like that. I just, you just want to hide behind the pulpit, right? Now, imagine now, like, you had to watch yourself on video speaking every week. <laughs> my, one of my first sermons that I ever recorded, I was so nervous I'm not kidding, I literally buttoned and unbuttoned my jacket button like a hundred times throughout the sermon. It was, it was so bad. It was so cringeworthy, right? It was one of the hardest things I ever had to watch myself doing and no, and I could sit there going, oh God. Because I thought I was just rocking, you know, in the moment you're like, yeah, I'm killing it. And then you watch it again, you're like, oh God, I'm never, ever, ever going to do that again. But what happened? I watched the video. I saw that. I saw the reality of it. And you know what? I never did that again. I never did it again. And now every week I watch those videos. I watch those videos. Not because they're pleasant. (laughs) Not because uh, I watch those videos and cringe every week because I want to get better. I want to improve. But man, I hate it. And James is saying really the same thing is, kind of true about the law. The true like shows you like what you really are, what you're really doing. Listen to, listen to how he says it. It'll make, you, uh, it'll, it'll make you cringe because it shows you you. Listen to what he says, um, 22 and 23. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. Now, the big idea, right, is you're looking at yourself in the mirror. That's pretty self-explanatory, right? You're looking at yourself in the mirror. You see yourself and then you walk away. You immediately walk away and you forget what you look like. Which is the fight or flight mechanism. You look at the mirror like one of those big backstage makeup mirrors with the giant 5,000 Kelvin you know 5000 K lights all around it that just shows like every flaw in your face so they can put the makeup on right You look into that mirror like that And you see how you like your skin is kind of sagging under your neck and you you know Like should I grow my beard out again? Should I not? I'm starting to get wrinkles Uh, Gosh, I look awful and then what's the, the temptation is to just like not look anymore, right? Like a kid who like buries his puts his head in a bucket and thinks that you can't see him anymore, right? Or thinks he's invisible Walk away, get away, get away, and forget what you saw. That's the big idea, right? But the key word in there, when he says natural face, what the word, what the Greeks really says, it says the face of his existence. That's really what it says. And in, in, in like Hebrew thought, your face was like, you know, kind of like what you presented to the world. Or, you know the front of you um, it really t- what it's saying is this is this is this is brutal it's like it's like the contours and shape of your the, your real existence that you that's on display to the world who you really are in your character what you're really like on the inside uh, and when you see that really the immediate response is to either defend yourself or run and the result is what the result is you get to forget what you saw listen i get how that might that brings immediate relief right but listen that brothers and sisters is not freedom that is not freedom that is slavery you know why Because if you just walk away and you forget what you look like, it doesn't make any of those things go away at all. It just means that you keep doing those things which you saw, unaware of them, or the damage that they cause you and your relationships. That's not freedom. That's slavery. To just be left to the mercy of your sinful compulsions, just to be left to the mercy uh, of your anger and fear, left to the mercy of the unbiblical ideas and, and, and thoughts that can so easily overcome us. Really just, when this says, uh, put, put aside, put off all filthiness, it's the same kind of language that Paul uses for taking off the old man, taking off the clothes of the old man. And this is saying, if you look away, you're just left standing there dressed in the filthy rags of your old sinful self. And you might not see it. Maybe you can forget about it. But everybody else can see it. Everybody else can see it but you. But praise God, James doesn't stop there or end it there and say that's just your fate He follows up with with hope. Listen to this. He says, this is a promise, but the one who looks into the perfect law, all of a sudden now he switched the metaphor up. What's the mirror? The mirror is the perfect law. And then he he expounds on that. What does he say about the law? The law of liberty. Really the law that produces freedom is the meaning that he's getting. And perseveres. doesn't throw up a defense, doesn't run away, but just as cringeworthy as it is, you can keep on looking. Uh, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed. You will be blessed in all your ways. Now, this isn't even really talking like eschatologically, end times, salvation, heaven stuff. It's saying, it's saying that, but it's also saying in all your ways, in the here and now, this will be God's blessing. This will bring to you freedom. And it comes from a very unexpected source, very unlikely source. And this is the last part. So first part was, truth will make you mad. Second part, truth will make you sad or cringe. And the third part is, the truth will set you free. Listen to how he said that. Did you hear what he said about the law? He said the law of liberty. That's such a weird way for us to hear the law talked about that I've heard pastors and theologians try to explain this, that it really means the gospel. The gospel is kind of like the new law of Christ, which uh, the principle of Christ's death and resurrection sets us free from the tyranny of sin and death. So really, James is talking about the gospel, but he's not. He's talking about the law, and he says it is the law, really, that produces freedom from the slavery of sin. And when I think of the law, what do you think about when you think of law? You think constraint, right? Not freedom. The law brings constraint. Back in the day, laws were meant to be broken. The laws were there to set the boundary markers so that you would stay on this side of the really fun stuff. That's how I live my life, right? It didn't, didn't work out well. It did not work out well at all because that was not true. Um, the law may be necessary to hem us in, to keep us from the sin we might otherwise commit. And there's a sense in that where the law is like the guardrail on a mountain pass road that keeps you from careening over the cliff, yeah, but really, the law is what's more than that. And in this context, he's really, he's not hitting the law from that aspect. He's saying uh, what the law is in the Bible really is the law is the perfect expression of love. When we look at the law, the law teaches us or shows us or gives us a picture of what it really means and what it really looks like to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love God our neighbor as ourselves. Remember, okay, so now think back. We're going to connect the dots between the last sermon I did in the Biblical Justice series. We did Isaiah 58. Do you remember that sermon? I talked about how Isaiah 58 uh, was full of all of these counterintuitive if-then statements. Uh you know, all these promises of God saying that you, you know, promising, like, you know, fullness of joy and freedom and um, experiencing, like, the power of the divine life. Uh, like, all these crazy promises that God gave about our, you know, the, the, our dawn and the pow- gospel going out from us in power uh, and receiving joy and freedom, right? And, 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 and the counterintuitive part were the ifs. You know, usually we think as American Christians that, you know, we'll receive, you know, the joy from the Spirit. Maybe it comes from, you know, Bible study or morning devotions or prayer. Um, and those things are, can be, those things are good and true and can produce those things. But what Isaiah 58 says, there's this big missing piece where it's really pouring ourselves out for the well-being of others. Pouring ourselves out for, toward the blessing of others that then allows us to be empty for the filling of the Spirit so that the divine life then flows in and through us and we experience joy and freedom and peace in that, right? And James is saying the same thing here at the end. Listen, verse 27, what does he say? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That idea of being unstained, unpolluted is really what we've been talking about in the first couple of points. To be very careful about not adopting uh, unbiblical ideas or patterns or practices into your life that will end up causing you pain and pain to the people closest to you, right? Uh, Sin. But listen, the other thing he says, really the thing he says first is what's so startling. He says... What? To visit orphans and widows and their afflictions. Remember the orphans and widows were part of that quartet of uh, the Old Testament of, the, of people who were um, helpless in society, people who were, we were supposed to go out of our way to help and support, the oppressed, the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. Those four categories all over the Old Testament. We dug that out in depth. Why? Because those were the people in that culture that had no social power, who had no um, financial power. They were stuck in 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 their position and had no way out unless someone helped them. And James is saying the same thing, that by pouring ourselves out, by doing justice, by doing what the word of God says, by pouring ourselves out, It opens us up to be filled with the Spirit. And you know what that does? That brings you freedom from the tyranny of self. Man. I have a friend, a pastor friend from Rocky Mountain area from Colorado. We were talking once and he goes, you know man, sooner or later, everybody gets sick and tired of themselves. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Everybody gets sick and tired of themselves. All those things that the Bible challenges that make us mad, all those things that the Bible exposes about our character that make us cringe, it's really just our, our selfishness and our pride and all the ways that we live for me, 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 me. <laughs> um, and the more, you, the more you live for you and for getting stuff, the more you need and the more depressed it makes you. <laughs> But if you turn that around and you live for others, you live for pouring yourself out, and you live for the service, the byproduct of that is filling with the Spirit of God, participating in the divine life, and it brings joy and frees you from that awful tyranny of self and selfishness. That's the first freedom that James is saying these things bring, or that the Word will bring to you. Now, for real, listen, truth He's saying these things are a hallmark of true faith. And that without them, the faith is useless, powerless. Really, he's saying, I think, devoid of the spirit and dead. And that is a frightening thing. That is some scary theology 101. To think of how how easy it is for us to make our religion all about hearing the word of God and not at all about doing it. James says, that's not faith. However, he's not like hitting it from the angle of with a club. He's saying, he's talking about the power of the word, the law to bring us freedom from the tyranny of self by exposing it to the light and then showing us the path and the power and the freedom of love, of acting out in love. But there's even bigger promise, a better promise. And that promise is freedom from the tyranny of sin and death, ultimate. Freedom from the tyranny of sin and death. You know, maybe you think about you're thinking about all that, and you're like, "Man, I, how am I even going to think about? It? How can I even do that? How can I be a doer of the word? It sounds so. Man, I can't even brush my teeth in the morning. Man, I can't even do my my to do list for the day. How am I gonna? Can't even keep my kid's room clean. How am I going to do the word of God? It's so. Massive. Well, let me introduce you to the most important word in this whole text. Look at verse 21. Where James says, and we've already looked at this once, but let's continue. He says, to receive with meekness, not just the word, but the implanted word. The implanted word. You know why that's the most important word in this passage? Because it means... It's a, word, it's a word that means permanently put in place. It's a word that means like a permanently established foundation with the implication of development, of growth from that point. What's it saying? What does that mean? What does the implanted word mean? It means the same thing that we read in our gospel passage earlier about God's promises that in the New Covenant He will put His Spirit within us and cause us to walk in His statues and obey His rules. That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one. Paul says in Romans that this is not behavior modification. This isn't a self-help program. This is about putting to death the deeds of the flesh. How? By the power of the Spirit that God has implanted in us. Leaning into that and watching the Spirit work in power in our lives and for our benefit, freeing us from the tyranny of self. Um, but uh, growing us, Paul says the same thing work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure, not work. For your salvation but work out the salvation that God has implanted in you through his spirit the word is in us Ezekiel Paul James Peter all of these guys are saying the same thing if you belong to Christ and his death resurrection Resurrected life is now given to us through the Spirit. He's implanted that word into us permanently. And that permanent implanting will grow. Will grow us in our sanctification. And ultimately, it's the promise that it will eventually come to fruition in our glorification. That if you see those things, closing out with this... Be, be of good courage by this passage. These are not threats. The word of God is not a threat to you. These are promises. He's promising that we should, so we should be of good courage because Christ has accomplished our salvation for us and that means he has permanently implanted that word in us. His spirit is in you. He is promising to work out that salvation that he's put in you. Uh, the Spirit of Christ is producing sanctification in us now, which is freedom from the tyranny of self. And if you see that process happening, if you're the guy who hears the Word of God and says, no, not going to do it, and then God breaks you and you end up doing it, and it comes a blessing, if that's you, then be of good cheer. When you see those things being worked out, it means that the Spirit is at work. And even if you squirm and fight and complain, eventually God who loves you will break you of that and you will give in to the perfect law of liberty and the joy and freedom and power of love. And if you see the Spirit in you, that means the Spirit is yours and he's yours to keep. And you will continue to develop and grow you to the point where Jesus will return and receive us into glory. And that's a promise. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, Lord, we thank you that you um, are really clear about this fact that you have implanted your word in us. Left to our own devices, Lord, we are prone to wander. And even even then, we still do. But as much as we may fear your word and, and fear what it might mean for our lives, ultimately, your spirit dwelling within us brings us into deeper and deeper levels of trust for you, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are patient with us and that you work through these things with us, growing us and developing us and showing us over time That your word your wisdom your truth is more beautiful and produces more joy and peace in this life than any other secular or any other current idea out there in the marketplace that it is better than anything the devil tries to tempt us with and we thank you that you tell us straight up that we are working from the position of your spirit permanently holding on to us and that what Christ's death and resurrection means is that you have a hold on us and you won't let us go. So we don't need to be afraid, Lord. We can trust you. We pray that you would help us to walk in that and to trust you to not be afraid uh, and to receive with meekness the word that you have implanted in us so that we might be blessed and we might be a blessing to others. Lord, help us to remember these things as we approach your, your supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And please stand uh, as we get ready to receive the Lord's Supper.